All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. I'm looking at the clock already and probably need to get rolling. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beside, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So last time, just a brief recap where we are, because uh, I guess this would have been two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, we looked at the opening nine verses and Paul's greeting to this church here in Corinth. And we briefly spoke about Paul's life and ministry. You know, his story is well known. We don't need to rehash it. But how he was an apostle by the will of God. And we saw how that was something he starts many of his letters with. I'm an apostle by the will of God for the gospel. So he's highlighting the fact that he himself did not sort of, you know, insert himself into this ministry. He was called apart by Jesus Christ. He was called by God, set apart, appointed, ordained by God for this task. He writes to the church in Corinth. We spoke a little bit about the church in Corinth, how they are saints who are being sanctified. So given all of the problems we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians, what this church is going through, they are still saints. They are still being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul treats them as such. And so he comes across in this opening section with words of encouragement. We also emphasize the fact that this is an instance of the church of God in Corinth. So highlighting this idea that we're going to see this morning about divisions in the church He doesn't call them necessarily the church in Corinth. He calls them the church of God in Corinth to highlight the fact that we are all part of God's church, whether it's in Corinth, whether it's in Rome, whether it's in Philippi, whether it's in Sutton, whether it's in Greeley. We're all part of God's church. The church is much bigger than this, just this local body here in Corinth. And then Paul closes his greeting by thanking God for the grace that God has lavished upon them. This church is a blessed church. This church is a gifted church. This church is a wealthy church. They have a lot going for them. And he acknowledges that. He acknowledges God's grace in that. But we also mentioned last time that Paul hints at some of the problems that he is going to call out through the body of this letter in this greeting. But again, he does so with words of encouragement. He's not... They're sort of berating them. He is there to encourage them. You are saints, and you are being sanctified. And then he's going to launch off on that. It's like, now live like it. Okay, you are saints, now live like it. So it's sort of like I mentioned last time, it's sort of like that bitter pill 
that you're trying to get your kids to take that you kind of wrap up either in a piece of bread or some candy so it goes down. You're like, oh, I'm eating candy. And then you realize, oh, wait, I just had some medicine and I didn't like it. So, you know, it's, this is what Paul is trying to do. Now, as we head into this passage this morning, verses 10 through 17, uh, in our first lesson when we were looking at the introduction, we talked about the occasion for Paul writing this letter. There were two reasons why he wrote this letter. The first one is that he received a report from these people of Chloe's household. Now, we don't know much about Chloe. We'll get into this a little bit. She was presumably a wealthy patron, perhaps, who hosted a church in her home. We don't really know. But then he also received a letter from the Corinthian church with various questions that they wanted to, uh, Paul to address. Questions on singleness and marriage. Questions on food offered to idols. Question on the spiritual gifts and how to... Um, conduct yourself in worship and the resurrection and all these other things. So Paul will address those. So this first part that we're looking at here, uh, the report from Chloe's household, takes up about the first third of the letter. From verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 6 is all about Chloe, the report from Chloe's household. And then the rest of the book, chapter 7 to the end, takes up the letter from the church. Now the report about problems in Corinth that comes from Chloe's household deals with two main problems. Two main problems in the report from Chloe's household. The first is uh, divisions in the church. And this is by far the largest part of this first part of the letter. This takes us from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 4. Paul is going to talk about divisions in the church. Then the rest of Chloe's, uh, the report from Chloe's household from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 6 deals with moral and ethical issues within the church, which can be further broken down into uh, they were tolerating incense, uh, incest in the church, and Paul has to address that. They were uh, calling members in the church and, and uh, taking them to, to court to settle lawsuits, uh, so matters in the church were being brought to public courts, and Paul will talk about that in chapter 6, and they were also excusing sexual immorality. Paul will also talk about that later on in chapter 6. But this section here on divisions, from chapter 1 to chapter 4, is the largest section in the letter of Corinth. So if you look at every single issue Paul deals with in the letter to Corinth, and just sort of kind of compare how many words he devotes to each issue, the, the section here on divisions in the church is the largest section. It's the one that is given the most importance. In fact, the, this chapter, this section here from 1 to the end of 4 rivals the size of some of his whole letters. You know, there are, are smaller letters that are smaller than this section in Corinth that he deals with on divisions in the church. And given the fact that Paul leads with this issue suggests the importance of this issue. Now, it's not a doctrine on the level of you know, salvation by grace through faith. It's not the centrality of the resurrection uh, to the life of the Christian, but from a practical perspective, it is an issue of first importance. Because how can the church be a light shining in a world of darkness when it can't even get its own act together? When there are divisions in the church, how can the church then be a witness to the world when the church is arguing? Because then the unbelievers are going to say, why would I want to go there? Because they can't even get along. And they're supposed to be believing the same things. Why would I want to be a part of that? So though we're going to look at this section here from chapter 1 to chapter 4 in smaller chunks as we go through, 
we need to keep in mind that this is all one larger discussion. So as we look at our passage this morning, uh, it breaks down four ways. You have it on your handout there. On verse 10, we're going to get Paul's exhortation. So this is the, the main command that he's going to give to them. Uh, we're, going to give the re- we're going to see the reason for Paul's uh, exhortation in verse 11. We're going to see Paul's rebuke in verses 12 through 16, and then Paul's solution in verse 17. But over the coming weeks, we'll look at Paul's solution to these divisions in more detail because starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and going in through chapter 2, we're going to see that the solution is found in, spoiler alert, if, I had, if you had one guess to guess where the solution to divisions in the church is found, where do you think it would be? Uh, Jesus, but more specifically, what is the story of Jesus called? The Gospel. Exactly. The solution is found in the Gospel. That's a shocker, right? I mean, no, it shouldn't be a shock. (laughs) All right, let's look first at Paul's exhortation. So after a very warm greeting, Paul gets down to business in verse 10 where he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he begins the body of his letter here with a plea, an earnest plea. And that word plead there um, is the word parakaleo, which is translated in the King James as beseech. If you have an English standard or a New International, it's appeal. If you've got a Christian standard Bible, it's urge. So plea, beseech, appeal, urge. And it kind of gets at the whole range of meaning of this word. It's, it, 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 it's, he is making a plea. He is, he is not, it's not a command. Okay, He is sort of urging them. He is exhorting them. He is pleading with them to be of the like mind. In fact, the authorized version does variously translate that word as beseech, comfort, exhort, desire. I earnestly desire that you do this. I beseech you that you do this. I exhort that you do this. Now Paul, being an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentile church, called by God, right? Called by God. He could have summoned all of his apostolic authority and he could have just started verse 10 by saying, all right, you guys in Corinth, knock it off. Stop with the divisions. What has gotten into you? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, he opts for the more positive and conciliatory plead. Paul was a master at reading his audience. Okay? He knew these people. He spent 18 months with these people. And he knows that in order, when, sometimes when you're trying to get to the bottom of a church division issue, the best thing may be to appeal to the positive notion of our identity with Christ as opposed to trying to berate them. Now, he has a different tact when he talks to the Galatians, right? I may have mentioned this before, but you know, very, you know, his, his greeting in the Galatians is very short, and then he gets in there and says, why have you left the gospel? So he's much more harsh with the Galatians because they were messing with the core truth of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were adding to it. This is, like I said, not a doctrinal issue, but this is a more practical issue of first importance. So he doesn't say, knock it off like he could have. He pleads with them. And the plea is based on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And it goes back to what we said last time, that this is the church of God at Corinth. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the church that Christ is building. Paul will later add in verse 13, he will rhetorically ask, is Christ divided? Divisions in the church is not consistent with our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a church that's split, particularly in the way that they were split, that is not consistent with our profession of faith. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, i.e. in the power and authority of Jesus Christ, Paul pleads with the brothers and sisters in Corinth that you all speak the same thing. And then later on he'll say, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now this is a call to unity. To unity, not uniformity. To unity. Paul is not pleading that the Corinthian church all think and speak literally the same thing. That they all have to be robots, okay? We love you, Jesus. You know, he's not saying you have to do that. He's saying you need to be united. You need to be united. It's a call to unity. And in the context of the letter, it's a call to unity by refraining from forming divisions over church leaders. Because that's what we're going to see in a couple of verses. They were dividing over church leaders. And he's saying, no, you need to, be, you need to think the same thing. You need to be of the same mind or the same judgment. Not like that. So the church of God is a divinely ordained collection of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, of all of whom are united in Christ. Now, you probably don't see that kind of diversity in a town, in a church like this, where this town is pretty much homogeneous, but you go to bigger cities and you, you will see some of this diversity because we are collected here, we are called by God into this church from every walk of life. And I like to say, you know, the church is made up of people that more than likely may not be together in any other context other than the fact that they're united in a church. Now, again, that might be different in a town like Sutton where, you know, everybody does everything together, everybody knows everybody, but from the church at large, particularly churches in larger cities, you're going to have groups of people that would not normally get together for any other reason other than the fact that they are believers in Jesus Christ. And to put it another way, we have, as Christians, we have more in common with people on the other side of the globe who are Christians than we do with our unbelieving neighbors next door to us. We have way more in common because we share this union in Christ. That means, as Paul says in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, he says, we have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, and one Father. Christians must be united on the essentials of the faith. As one writer puts this, this is John MacArthur, he says, nothing is more confusing to new Christians or to unbelievers who are considering the claims of Christ than to hear supposedly mature and informed Christians tell conflicting things about the gospel, the Bible, or Christian living. If we're not united, it provides a bad witness to the world because they hear the confusion in the church that ought not to be there. So we are part of this one body, the church. 
We all have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us and sanctifying us. We worship one Lord Jesus Christ. We profess one faith. We partake of one baptism, etc. We are united in this sense. And that's what makes divisions in the church so anti-Christian. And the, Paul, the word Paul uses there in verse 10 for divisions is the word schisma. Or we get the word schisms from that word. That, that word. And it's the word that Jesus uses in the Gospels in Matthew 9 and Mark 2 when he speaks of putting a new piece of a new patch on a piece of unshrunk, an unshrunk patch on an old garment. When you put a new patch on an old garment, then when you, you know, that, that garment will stretch and that patch, which has been unshrunk, will tear. It causes a tear when you put a new patch on an old garment. It causes a schisma in the garment. And the attitude of the Corinthians was quite literally tearing the church apart. Something that ought not to be done. Rather than tearing the church apart, Paul pleads that they would be perfectly joined together. And that word there, kartartizo, speaks of repairing that which has been torn. So he's basically saying, don't divide the church. Rather, be mended together as is proper for the church of God. Now on to verse 11, uh, Paul's reason. So that's Paul's exhortation to open the letter. Be united. Be of the same mind. I plead with you that you will be like-minded. Speak the same things. And be, have the same judgment. Be perfectly joined together. And what's the reason for that plea? Well, we've looked at this before, but verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, we've spoken about this before, but what Paul has said here in verses 10 through 17 was prompted again by this declaration, this making known, it has been declared to me, this declaration by those of Chloe's household. And I mentioned earlier, we don't know a whole lot about Chloe, so everything I'm going to tell you about Chloe is speculation, okay? Take it with a grain of salt. This is just my speculation. Uh, it's, we don't know anything else about her from the Bible other than that there are those from her household that came to Paul with this letter. Now, it seems reasonable to assume that she is a member of the church in Corinth, and it seems reasonable that she may have even had a church group in her home, because we mentioned that the church of Corinth wasn't like there was one big giant church building that people went to. They met in individuals' homes. So you need to have sort of like a wealthy patron who would be able to open up his or her home to a church group. It's also possible that she or her family uh, had considerable means because in order to send messengers from Corinth to Ephesus, it was, it's not like sending a letter from you know, Sutton to, you know, Grafton, okay? You know, you had, to, you, had, you had to send somebody on foot to go from Corinth to the other side of the Aegean Sea where Ephesus was, okay? So you have to have some kind of means. That wouldn't be cheap. And finally, I think we can presume that she is a true believer who is legitimately concerned with what's going on in the church. Now again, this is, this is all speculation. We don't really know much about her, so I'm just kind of painting a picture of what might be the case for her. Now, the report that Paul received from Chloe's household was that simply that there are contentions among you. 
there are contentions among you, or quarrels. And that's the word there. That word there for contentions, which means contention, strife, or wrangling, is only used nine times in the entire New Testament, all by Paul. And the various versions translate that as contentions in the King James or New King James, uh, quarrels or quarreling. If you have an ESV, a New American Standard, a New uh, International Version, if you're using the Christian Standard Bible, they have rivalries. So you've got contentions, quarrels, or rivalries. And I think those are all good translations given the semantic range of the word. The church was fighting. They were quarreling. They were contending with one another over, what, over which we'll see shortly. And the fighting was causing these tearing aparts, these schisms in the church. And it gotten so bad in Corinth that Chloe's household made known this problem to Paul. It's interesting to note, too, that that word contentions is used in Galatians 5.20 when Paul talks about these are the works of the flesh. And he gives you a whole bunch of bad things, among which are contentions or quarrelings. So what the church in Corinth is doing is they're not acting in accordance with their call, in accordance with their profession. They were acting fleshly. They were producing works of the flesh. We'll see this later in Galatians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, I wanted to speak to you as mature Christians, but I have to speak to you as carnal, as fleshly, as babes in Christ, because you don't know this simple fact that the church is not to be divided. And this is a real problem in the church. A real problem in the church. It wasn't secret. It wasn't contained to only a few people in the church. It had broken out. It was a real blowout in the church. And it was causing quarreling and divisions. Now, you know, we often, again, you know, we look back at the first century church and we often say, boy, it would be great if we could you know, be among those pioneers in the church. You know, they, they had it right. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> this, the church of Corinth did not have it right. Okay, and every church has problems, right? Every church has problems because the church is composed of what? People. <laughs> the church is composed of people. Therefore, there will always be problems. The joke in seminary was ministry is wonderful if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> now, I don't say that about you guys. You guys are wonderful. <laughs> I mean, who, do who doesn't want a cup holder? <laughs> <laughs> now you guys have been wonderful but the church is composed of people there will always be problems we may be redeemed sinners but we still struggle with sin and even the most biblical church the most holy church the most pious church will still be tainted with sin and when problems when the problems within a church become public when they become made known to all, then we have a real problem. You know, so to paraphrase Apollo 13, you know, <coughs> Corinth, we have a problem. You know, we have a problem. It's divisions in the church. Public problems within the church can damage the witness of the church. We've been saying this already. We can become, we, the church, the people, can become the offense. I mean, the, the gospel is an offense to unbelievers. We don't need to add to the offense by being offensive. And we don't need to add to the offense by having a damaged witness to 
the outside world. Divisions and contentions within the church do real damage to the cause of Christ. And the church in Corinth had lost its focus on true spirituality. Again, recall what we said during the introduction of this book, that the church of Corinth was immature. They were arrogant. They were conceited about their own giftedness. They thought that they had sort of you know, made it, you know, that they were everything in a bag of chips. That's what they thought they were. And again, as MacArthur says, spirituality produces humility and unity. Carnality, fleshliness, produces pride and divisions. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They were a carnal church. They were acting carnally. So now we move on to verses 12 through 16 as we see the rebuke. Now what is the nature of the divisions and the contentions within the church? Well, we see that in verse 12. Paul says, now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. So it seems that within the church of Corinth, factions had developed, or cliques, or maybe even parties in the the political party sense, were forming in the church, and these factions were centered on popular teachers, Paul, or Paulus, or Cephas, and then you have the, the... the pious group, that we only follow Christ. You know, that's kind of what they're saying there. Now, it's possible. Again, we don't know what was causing these contentions. It's possible that this is based on what Paul says in verse 14, that these factions were maybe the base, on the basis of who baptized whom. This is speculation. Because Paul will say in verse 14, says, I, didn't, I didn't baptize hardly anybody there. You know, so maybe they were... They were aligning with the person who baptized them. Or maybe they were aligning with the person who brought them to faith. Or maybe they're just aligning with the people they liked as opposed to the people they didn't like. Who knows? Whatever the reason, they were forming these factions. Now we know who Paul is. Okay, He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the guy who founded this church. And we know who Jesus is, right? <laughs> right? We know who Christ is, the Son of God, you know, the Messiah, the eternal Word who became flesh. But who is Apollos and who are, who are Apollos and Cephas? Well, Apollos, we learn about Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. I'm not going to read that. But we learn from that section. That's where we're first introduced to Apollos. Apollos is an Alexandrian Jew. Okay, and what does that mean? It means he was from Egypt. Okay, he was an Egyptian Jew. So he was probably scattered during one of the earlier dispersions, made his way to Alexandria and Egypt, and he was... You know, a Jew who lived in Egypt. But he was just, he's described as an eloquent speaker. Okay? He was mighty in the Scriptures, uh, they, they say in Acts. So he's, he's a gifted orator. And he's gifted not only in the ability to speak, but he's gifted in knowledge of the Scriptures. So he comes to Ephesus. And he begins preaching there. He begins preaching the things of the Lord. But his theology was a little lacking. All right? He was a little lacking in his theology because we find out that Paul's friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who he met at Corinth and had followed him to Ephesus and were there when Apollos was there, uh, they were there at the same time. And we learn that Aquila and Priscilla, this power couple, sort of taught Apollos the way of God more perfectly. So it wasn't that Apollos was wrong, it's just that he was incomplete. So they take him aside and says, we need to fill these holes in your theology. And they do so. And then we learn from Acts chapter 19, verse 1, that Apollos then makes his way to Corinth. 
So that's how Apollos gets to Corinth. So he's there, he's an eloquent speaker, mining the scriptures, and now his theology has been more well-rounded. Now, who is this guy Cephas? Anybody have any ideas who Cephas is? Don't look at your study notes. All right, you can look at your study notes. Yeah, yeah. So Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock, right? Peter is the Greek word for rock. Now, his real name is Simon, but Jesus changes his name. He says, you are now Petros. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. So this is, this is Peter, one of the 12. Now, the Bible doesn't record Peter even being in Corinth. It doesn't mean that he wasn't there, or at the very least, maybe some of his disciples made it to Corinth. Either way, you've got these factions now forming in Corinth. You've got the Paul party. All right? So, you know, you think of a presidential debate, and you've got the candidate from the Paul party. Okay, you've got the Paul party here. These are people, perhaps, who were loyal to Paul as the founder of the church. Perhaps many were Gentile Christians. Then you've got the Apollos party on the other side here. These are maybe people who are attracted to the eloquence and knowledge of Apollos as a speaker. Then you've got the Peter party. That sounds weird to say that. You've got the party devoted to Peter. Perhaps maybe largely Jewish Christians in the church who were attracted to Peter and his uh, Jewishness. And then you've got the Christ party. Okay, the Christ party. These are, these are more than likely overly pious people who wanted to appear to be above all of the divisions in the church. It's like, we don't worship these men we worship Christ, so we're the Christ party. Now think of it like school rivalries or rivalries between political parties. Okay, think of you got we've got the Nebraska party, and we've got those who like Oklahoma, right? Boo. We got those who like Iowa. Boo. You know. So every time these guys come around, it's like they're probably booing one another. Yeah, he's of the Paul party. Boo. We 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 follow Apollos. He was a great mighty speaker. Paul rebukes this mentality in 13 with three rhetorical questions. Okay? The answers to these questions are all no. <laughs> Where he says in verse 13, Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Answer? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer? No. So the first rhetorical question, is Christ divided? If the church is the body of Christ, is the body divided? An arm here, a leg there? Well, that might happen if you get into a, like a horrific accident and you're dismembered or maybe you're like one of these guys in the army who defuses bombs but you missed a wire or something and it blew you up. Yeah, then your body's divided. But the body of Christ is not divided. The Christ is not divided, neither should his body be. It's an absurdity. The second rhetorical question, was Paul crucified for you? Again, the obvious answer is no. Paul wasn't and couldn't be crucified for you. Paul couldn't atone for your sins. He would have to atone for his own sins first. And he's not even able to do that. And then third, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, we are, un we are not united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Paul. We're united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So these divisions over teachers fails on one important point. 
Christ is the head of the church, not Paul, not Cephas, not Apollos. And this will be Paul's point later in chapter 4, that Paul, Apollos, Cephas, all of us, we are servants. Christ is the head. Same thing in the church today, right? Ministers are under-shepherds. Christ is the head shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the great shepherd. We are under-shepherds. We work for Him. Okay? That's, that's the deal. And then in verse, verses 14 through 16, Paul goes on to show how he baptized relatively few people in Corinth and precisely for the reason that he didn't want to create a personal following. It's interesting to note that because we note in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, when John, or Jesus' disciples are baptizing, Jesus didn't baptize anybody. Paul didn't baptize hardly anybody. And we see in Acts chapter 10 when Peter's at Cornelius' house and he says, you know, should, you know, these people need to be baptized. Peter didn't baptize them for this very reason. Because he didn't want to form a following based on Peter or Paul or any of these people. I mean, imagine if you were baptized by Jesus himself. Imagine how you could lord that over people. I was baptized by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How about you? you know, that's, that's precisely the reason why Jesus didn't baptize anybody. So what's the solution? Verse 17. What was the solution? We, saw, we, we said this earlier. What's the solution? Two divisions? The gospel. Yes. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words, uh, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, the first part of this verse is not meant to downplay baptism or suggest that it's unnecessary. Just Paul is just emphasizing that his primary purpose was to preach the gospel. That's what Christ called me to do. He called me to preach the gospel. He called me to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. Even Jesus and Peter prioritized preaching the gospel over baptizing people. We looked at those examples in John 4 and Acts 10. One isn't saved by or through baptism, but through faith in Christ, which comes through the means of gospel ministry. In fact, you really ought not to separate the administration of the sacraments from the ministry of the Word. They go together. You can't baptize without the gospel being preached, right? You can't just do Lord's Supper without the gospel being preached. They are to be together. We're like, well, how do you know that? Well, because our confessional standards say so. <laughs> Belgian Confession, Article 33, in part, says, the sacraments which God has joined to the word of the gospel, the better to present to our senses both that which he declares to us by his word and that which he works inwardly in our hearts. So the sacraments are supplementary to the gospel. We hear the gospel being preached, and then we see the gospel administered through the sacraments. So they are like visual aids to help us. But it's never to be divorced from the preaching of the word. It is the gospel that brings us together, not the preacher. If you're a believer in Jesus, while that was done through the ministry of a preacher, or maybe a friend, it was the Holy Spirit working in and through the preached Word. And the story is the same for every Christian. Whether you came to Christ as a young child, whether you came to Christ as an adult, the story is the same. You are saved by the Gospel. You are saved as the Holy Spirit quickens your heart, 
brings you new life, gives you rebirth, helps you to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel and beauty of Jesus Christ all through the work of the Spirit. It's not the eloquence of the preacher or the depth of his theological knowledge. The power is in the gospel. And that's the, the same gospel that Paul preached, that Apollos preached, that Cephas preached. They all preached that very powerful message of the gospel. And the second half of verse 17 leads us into the next section, which will go from verse 18 through about chapter 2, verse 5. Paul emphasizes the purity of the gospel message. Paul isn't interested in dressing up or embellishing the gospel with wisdom of words, you know, with clever speech. Uh, the history of the church is filled with clever preachers who have sought to spruce up the gospel message to make it more palatable to the world. And what happens when you add to the gospel? You dilute it, right? <laughs> you dilute it. You make it of no effect. That's what he says here. When you do that, when you spruce up the gospel, make it more palatable to the world, you make the cross of Christ of no effect. And that's the same word there, no effect, that Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 7, when he talks about Jesus emptying himself. Jesus laid aside his prerogatives of deity to take on human flesh. He emptied himself. And when you try to spruce up the gospel with words of wisdom, you empty the gospel of its power. Adding human wisdom to gospel is worse than nothing. <laughs> it's worse than nothing. Because if you do that, you, have the, you, you run the risk, you have the potential of making false Christians who believe in a false gospel have a false hope. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be clear or persuasive when we're presenting the gospel. Uh, just don't embellish it. Just don't add to it and don't subtract from its message. I like this quote from Spurgeon. I don't know if it necessarily applies, but I just like this quote from Spurgeon where he says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. <laughs> right? <laughs> a lion doesn't need any help defending himself. Just let it loose. Open the cage door. Let the word out. Now, I want to conclude here with just some words of application. Now, hopefully, I won't get myself in trouble when I do this. <laughs> but um, how do we apply this to our current church situation here today? I mean, surely we don't su suffer from church divisions in the 21st century, right? One application is in the sense of denominationalism. I talked about this a little bit the last time. Now, denominationalism, not, it's not bad. Okay, I don't want to, I don't, I want to preface this. I don't think denominationalism is bad. It's, it's proper in, in, in many cases for people with similar theological convictions to want to congregate and worship together. Again, you know, Reformed and Presbyterian people have different views on baptism than Baptists do. It wouldn't make sense to try to merge those two churches together because we would differ on baptism. Okay? It doesn't mean we can't work together for the greater cause of the kingdom, but it does mean we probably are not going to have a good time worshiping together. Particularly when the Baptists start seeing babies baptized, they may, you know, their heads may explode. right? Or Presbyterians may explode, their heads may explode when you're not baptizing your babies. Why aren't you baptizing your child? Why aren't you bringing him into the covenant? So, denominationalism is not necessarily bad, but 
This is a bad butt, okay? Butt's my favorite word, but this is a bad butt. Surely, and this is from a commentary, so this is not my words, but it, it speaks to what I feel. Uh, but surely the majority of Christian denominations, particularly the numerous subgroups, that's the main point, into which most of the major branches of Protestantism, Protestantism have split, have been spawned at least as much by personal rivalry, animosity, and a split of intolerance, often along geographical or ethnical lines. Okay. So it's not the case so much that, you know, Reformed Presbyterians and Baptists ought to be together, but how about all the, you know, various divisions within the Reformed and Presbyterian circles, right? You know, I, before coming to the RCUS, I was in the OPC, and I had to learn about Presbyterian history, and they gave us a chart of pres the history of Presbyterianism in the United States, and it was, you know, lines charting how, you know, the Presbyterian Church started and all the splits. And I tell you, that map looked like spaghetti. It was lines going all over the place, splits here, splits there, remerges, then splits, 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 and remerges, and all over the place. They jokingly call the Presbyterians the split peas because they're all over the place. Now, sometimes you have to split. Right? If a church is starting to go off and veer into apostasy, into heresy, it is right and, and proper for people of firm Christian convictions to either, if they cannot work within this confines, if they cannot change the minds of those who are going off into error, they have to split. Some splits are necessary. But then, you know, you consider the history of the church here in Sutton. <laughs> okay. All right, you know, I looked at a little bit of the history, not a lot, but Emmanuel is the first church, right? So we were the, the, the mother church, and then for whatever reason, a bunch of people broke off and formed the German church out in the country, and then 20 or 30 years later, another bunch of people broke off and formed Hope Church down the street. Now, why did those, I don't know the reasons behind that, but here you got people who believe ostensibly the same things, but they're probably splitting over whether or not you speak German or English in the, in the church service. Is that a proper reason to split the church? I would say no, but then I'm not from here. So I'm, you know, if I say no, I might, get, I might get tarred and feathered and kicked out of town. But is that a proper reason to split the church? Because you're not speaking in German. Did God speak in German? Did Jesus speak German? <laughs> you know, it's like, did Jesus speak King James English? No, no, okay. <laughs> All right, so you've got all of these tendencies within Reformed denominations that want to separate rather than unite. And I think about this, and I'm like, I'm not saying this is an easy thing to do, but what about all the churches that adhere to the three forms of unity? Okay, we're a church that adheres to the three forms of unity. There are other churches that adhere to the three forms of unity. Why are we split? We have the same confessional documents. I'm not, again, I'm not saying it would be easy you know, you can just sit down over dinner or supper, you know, and hash it out in two hours. No, it would probably take years to do that. But why are we split? Why are there so many Presbyterian churches that adhere to the Westminster standards? Why are they split? And sometimes I feel like denominations like, you know, you know the RCUS, I'm not, you know, again, I might get in trouble for saying this, but it feels like sometimes we want to take stances on things that make us even more distinct rather than less distinct. Okay, you know, I mean, this, this past uh, synod meeting, we had a discussion, a very heated one, on women voting in churches. And my initial thought was, is that what we want our denomination to be known as? 
the church that doesn't allow women to vote in their congregational meetings, whether you think that's a good thing or not. I mean, are we going to split? Again, if we had voted that in, I wouldn't be surprised if we had another church split at some point. Because you're going to have some that are just very vehemently against that, and they're going to be like, okay, fine, we're out. If you're going to force us to do that, we're not going to be part of this. So why are we working on things, you know, if the gospel is the center of the target on a dartboard, why are we working on things that are like way on the edge? I don't get that sometimes. I don't see why we do that as a church. Again, I'm not trying to say we should compromise. I'm not trying to say that we should, you know, compromise our convictions just to get along. But surely, again, people who hold to the three forms of unity should be able to unite. We could be a much bigger church if we tried to focus on the majors and not on the minors. That's just my thought. Other ways that this applies to us, and I'm going to wrap up real quick here. You get this idea of Christian celebrity, right? There are any number of people who are drawn to popular radio or internet or podcast preachers and teachers to the point that they would rather stay at home and listen to their favorite teacher on the radio or on the internet than come to church and gather with God's people. And even within a church, you might have people who are more loyal to a former pastor or a current pastor or the pastor down the street. You know, it's, again, it's, this is not the church of Carl, okay? I, did, I, didn't, I wasn't crucified for you. I wasn't baptized. You weren't baptized in my name. I'm just a servant, right? You guys called me, and I'm glad to be here to serve this church. I am just a servant. It is not me that you need to be drawn to. It is Christ. And if I preach Christ, then that's well and good. If I don't preach Christ, you guys need to let me know that. And let me know that fast so I can make changes. I don't know if I'll edit all that out at the end, but <laughs> I'm afraid of getting in trouble. But uh, anyway, that's all I have. Uh, next time, the 7th, because uh, next week uh, I won't be here because I'll be doing Mission Fest up in Menno. Uh, we'll have Matthew Dawn here, so we're probably not going to have Sunday school, adult Sunday school in the morning. Um, I'm assuming that's okay, right? Okay. So the next time we meet will be November 7th, and I plan to go over verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1.